All right, let's take our Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, we'll pick up where we left off last week. We'd made our way through the six trumpets, so we got finished with the six of the seven and noted how now, now Revelation does something it did before. It's the same kind of pattern in between the sixth and the seventh declarations of judgment. There's an interlude. And what's important to keep in mind about the interlude, and it happened between the sixth and the seventh seal, the information itself is not necessarily giving us something purely chronological at this point. So it, it, there's going to be material in chapters 10, uh, really chapter 11, that, that take us back to the first three and a half years. Even though I think the seven trumpets happen in, in the midst of the great day of God's wrath uh, and the, the, the second part um, of the tribulation, but it's going to fill in some gaps. And the other thing we noted about these interludes, they're really important. They're kind of tension breakers in the text, so to speak, as we have this intense discussion, uh, re- revelation of God's judgment to come. Th- these give us a, a bit of a moment to breathe. And it reminds us that while God's judgment is terrifying and heavy, and it should be, we should be mindful of it that way, uh, we can still trust God is faithful and God is good and God is sovereign and uh, has made good and precious promises to his own people. So the, that's where these interludes come in and that's what's happening in chapter 10, then going to chapter 11 and it's, it's not till we get to verse 15 of chapter 11 that we actually get the sounding of uh, the, the seventh trumpet and even then, there's going to be a bit of a delay between the sounding of the seventh trumpet and then the unleashing of the bold judgments. We'll, we'll get to that when it comes. Uh, but two things I want to do first. One, I, I, it might be helpful for me to go ahead and address what may be a question you'd already have. Is what's Russia doing, is this in the book of Revelation? I don't think so. Well, what I mean by that is, I recognize Revelation has, you know, a, a lot of information that, that we take with humility, but boy, there are a lot of people out there, apparently, and uh, was just shown just a little, little while ago, Greg Laurie is saying, yes, this, this is the end times. You know, this is, a, this is the challenge here, because I have been hearing the entirety of my Christian life. I've been a Christian for a long time. <laughs> Uh, 13, all right? So I've been hearing, I know that's not as long as some of you, all right, I get that, but it's, so, but I've been involved, you know, every time the doors were open, so I've known nothing but this. I never remember a time that somebody wasn't saying, this is it. This is the end. We have been in the end times for a long time. You know, so we do want to reserve our rush to saying, um, th- this, this, is, this is it. Um, now, with that said, this is a fulfillment of Jesus' words. There, there, when we heard it in the prayer this morning, there will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. But this is not the end. That's what he says. <laughs> So be careful with that. Uh, I know you'll, you'll, and you'll, you'll hear a lot. A lot of folks like to jump on some of the language in the book of Revelation that references a bear, all right? 
We want to make Russia the bear. Um, so uh, I, I, do, I do not find in what's happening uh, necess- necessarily fulfillment of this stuff that we have been talking about beyond the fact that God has said in general terms, this is the nature of, of humanity. Now, one of these days, if they keep predicting, I mean, one of these days, they're bound to get it right. Uh, I mean, it may be a thousand years from now, but one day one of them's going to go, see, <laughs> I told you. Uh, but, but for now, um, I, I would be cautious here. Now, I do find benefit in taking these kind of world events that can create such chaos and tragedy and reminding people this is what it looks like when people are in charge. This is what our country looks like when people are in charge. Humans will always make a mess of things eventually. Even the best of them. We, we have not been designed to rule ourselves. We operate best when in submission to God and His sovereignty. That's how we're made. Now, that's been radically warped by sin, and so that's why we think we can be our own God. And this is kind of what we do. So, we are, we are as I've said many, many times, this is just another example, we're terrible at, at running our own lives. We're terrible at it. We make terrible decisions. We're terrible at running our own lives. We're terrible at running countries. We're terrible at running dictatorships. All right, we just, this is just the nature of humanity and we do well to remember these things. When these things crash upon our TV sets and we read them online, we can't get away from this news. It, it should just be a glaring reminder to us. Really, it's, it's Psalm 2. If you wonder what that is, you're gonna have to read it tonight, all right? Why do the nations rage? The question being, why are they such fools? I mean, that's the, that's the implication. Why are they such fools? Well, that's their nature. This is what they do. But the God in heaven laughs because he's already established his son on the throne and the earth is his footstool. The earth is, is the son of God's ottoman, all right? And so we, we need to be mindful of these things. All right, so, so that's, that's one, all right? That's one thing. But are there any questions about that? <laughs> are, any, any questions or any questions about what we've talked about thus far. Lingering from last week, talking about the the trumpet judgments. If you have any specific questions about chapter 10, hold on to those, all right, for when when we do a little bit more discussion, though we did kind of jump into it last week. We'll get to a bit more of it tonight, but questions. All right. Very good. Well, let's jump back in then. Chapter 10, you may recall then from last week, we started to take a look at this. Chapter 10 records for us, John sees another mighty angel. That's what verse 1 calls him. And uh, we distinguish this mighty angel uh, from Jesus. This This is most certainly not, as far as I'm concerned, a reference to Jesus, though he clearly is described as having immense power and glory. So he's, he's clothed with a cloud. He's got a rainbow on his head. His face was like the, sh- the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. And, and I, I would just chalk this up to being an archangel. I, could it be Michael? Could it be Gabriel? Well, sure, sure, it could be. Uh, that, would be that would be fitting. Is, is, it, is he the only of his kind? Maybe, maybe, 
you know, that this, the, this angel is designed for this day and this purpose, and this is, this is how he's functioning. So there's a bit of mystery to who he is. What, what I think matters here is this angel comes as a representative of the sovereign power of God. So he has on him God's divinity, God's holiness, and God's power. Now, it says in verse 2 that he had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So is he a giant angel, right? I mean, you read this and think, wow, it's probably a good thing he didn't show up to Mary, right? I mean, the Christmas story would be really different if this was the guy who showed up. You know, is this necessarily saying he literally is this gigantic? Or is this John describing what it looks like? He, this angel has been given uh, a certain kind of authority from God. So to have his, land, his foot on the land and on the sea, this is definitely symbolism of sovereignty. Um, in charge of land and sea. What else is there? You know, really, right? So he's in charge of the land, in charge of the water. So it's, it's indicating dominion. And, and he has this book in his hand, this little book. Well, if he's standing on the sea and on the land, any book in his hand is going to look little, all right? So he has this little book. We don't know what this book is. Like, it doesn't identify specifically, uh, there, there are um, options that have been given. Uh, some have suggested maybe it's the book of Revelation itself. Uh, I think I've put there in your notes, there is some uh, suggestion. This is, uh, this is referenced in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, this special scroll. Uh, keep in mind, when it says book, you know what it means. It doesn't mean book. They didn't have bound books this would have been a scroll, all right, Roll, rolled up from one end to the other, and that, that would have been what it's talking about. So this is a scroll, um, and, and it's, it's opened, it is unfurled. What I think matters about this is that he is coming with divine revelation, the book is open, it suggests then it is available and accessible. So he is coming then with the message of, of the Lord, and this is going to be distinguished from what's coming next, all right? So it says in verse 3, that he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. What does that mean? I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, you know, in, 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 in a sense, that is such a mysterious statement. Some have identified this with angels. Some have identified this with the seven angels blowing the seven trumpets. It, it, but it doesn't use that language. It doesn't, it doesn't say that. It says that seven thunders. I, I'm inclined to think, again, this is John trying to describe something unearthly, otherworldly. There's not enough letters in the Greek alphabet to describe this. And so what it sounds like to him as this angel utters his voice, is like the thundering of seven thunders. So it's, it's just speaking to something of volume and of power. So these seven thunders uttered their voices, all right? So John hears this, though. Whatever's being uttered is intelligible. And this is a really interesting part of the story to me. I was about to write... 
But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, which by the way, suggest it's not the angel nor the seven thunders. <laughs> this is another voice from heaven. I heard it. We don't know what voice. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. All right, that's just strange. Right? On the, on the one hand, here we have a book. What's the name of the book? Revelation. What's at the heart of Revelation? Revealing stuff, right? To have a revelation is to reveal, to make known, to unveil. And what's John being told? He hears something coming from these seven thunders. Really mysterious statement. He's about to write it down. That's his job. He knows this is what I am designed to do. I'm a prophet. And uh, this, is, this is what God has given me this vision for. But he's told, don't write it down. That for whatever reason, these things are not for earth. What is the purpose of this message? We don't know. Was it for John's encouragement? We don't know. Is it for just those in heaven? We don't know. But John's told not to say anything, not to write it down. Now, some have suggested that, that eventually this is revealed. This is the rest of the book of Revelation. I don't see anything in the text that says this. You know, you know what I think is going on here? While it's really strange, I also think it's really helpful. I think a passage like this is a reminder to us that while God has been good to reveal himself through his word, it is, it is a radically small amount of information we've been given. There are some things we do not know. There are things God has not said. This is a reminder to us that there is information being declared in heaven about what's going to happen in the end, and you and I don't have any idea what it is. Listen, we could, we could spend the next two years painstakingly going through every single word in Revelation, and there could very well exist a host of information. It's just not available to us about all the other things that are going to happen during this period of time. It's just, again, it's just another reminder to us that, that while God is a God who reveals, God does not tell me everything. He doesn't give me all, he doesn't give me all that there is to know about him and his plan. Michael? I realize the context is very different, and I realize the purpose was very different, but you made mention of it before in sermons about Jesus timing of revealing who he is as the Son of God, the Messianic secret. Yes. Doesn't this sort of harken back to that and maybe speaking to a question of timing of the revealing by saying, don't write it up, don't write it down, seal it up for now. So not, I, I, can we guarantee that it will be revealed at more sometime? Of course not. But at the same time, we do have an example. We have some precedent for this. Oh, yeah. Even within the earthly context during Jesus' earthly ministry, because everybody, there was, there was a timing about when Jesus wanted to reveal who he really was, who he really is. And he would withhold some of that revelation for a reason. We may not know all the reasons for that. We are given some of the reasons for that, at least contextually, about why he did that. Yes. But we're not given all the reasons for that. Sure. So maybe there's some precedent there. Th there absolutely is some precedent of God not giving everything when he could give it. 
uh, and, 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 and yes, that all, all of that we find on a number of occasions, Jesus not saying everything. We, we find on a couple of occasions, Jesus telling people, now don't go tell people what has happened. Though a couple of them didn't listen. Uh, they did. They did just do, do that. And um, no one in this room ever hears what Jesus has said and then does the opposite. But some people did, all right? And, and so, yes, I think that is. And in fact, I should say, I have every confidence that one day we will know what these seven thunders are saying. I just don't think we know now. I just don't think, I, I, think, I think this is intentional. I think it's a reminder to us. They're, 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 God has a perfect knowledge and we can trust his revelation of himself, but that is a limited revelation. You and I don't even know everything there is to know about any topic in the Bible, let alone something like the end times and revelation. We don't know everything there is to know about God. And, and you know, this is, this is just, again, another reminder to us. It's why one of my favorite descriptions of the Bible comes from Calvin, where he is describing uh, in his section in the Institutes of the Christian Religion on the doctrine of revelation. He's talking about the Bible, and he describes it as the way a nurse talks to her charge, meaning the one she's in charge of, and the way that's translated I mean, mean, to to take it into our day, he is saying that the Bible is like God engaging in baby talk. So think about that. When you read Revelation, that's God going goo-goo-ga-ga to you, to me. Not quite. But I mean, that's God God pointing and saying cat, C-A-T. That's the best you can get because that's where you are. I don't, think we, I don't think we always appreciate this. I think we really think we can handle whatever information God can shove our way, and we can't. My guess is whatever's being sealed up is for our own good. If God has seen fit not to tell me, all right, I can trust. Now, has God told me everything? No, but has God given me sufficient information? Yes. Yes. I can only imagine that what this is is something I just don't want to know. There's some things you don't want to know, Right? In fact, there's some things you know now that you think, oh, I wish I didn't know them, all right? I mean, there's a few things that you know, oh, I wish I didn't know that. <laughs> so there are some things that you just don't want to know. So John is told, seal this up. Don't talk about it. Don't write it down. Again, just so you know, there were, what's funny then is if, if you read the, the commentaries, the literature about this, you can find hundreds of pages <laughs> of commentators trying to explain what this thing is that God told John, don't write it down. And they spend hundreds of pages trying to write it down, right? They try to write down what it is. So I found it comical. I didn't read all those hundreds of pages because I thought, well, God said don't write it down, so I don't really care. Uh, Meaning he saw fit to leave it at that. So I'm good with that. All right, verse 5. Unless anybody's got a question about that little tidbit there, all right? All right. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. 
So this, this angel then, then issues a, a, a promise, swearing by the Lord God. Now, again, don't, don't be thrown off by that. This, this, uh, you know, we, we tend to react pretty negatively to language of somebody swearing, right? Because uh, we immediately go to Jesus saying, let, let your yes be yes, your no be no. And so I, I understand that in terms of how, and, and that's really specifically geared toward how you and I should relate to one another. Meaning if I tell, if I tell you something, if I say, I saw this or I did this, I shouldn't have to swear by anything else. Like I should be trustworthy enough. But this is different. This is a testimony. He is swearing. He's giving a testimony to the greatness and the glory of God. And now indicating. So he's making a proclamation. It's going to no, no more delay. When the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, then the, the mystery of God would be finished. Now, that, now there's, there's two things here, all right? First, the word mystery, and then the word finished. First, the word mystery. Then this, this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, though I don't think, by the way, these are the same things. I'll just go ahead and say this. I, I don't think this is saying what's going to be made known is what was the message of the seven thunders. I think this is a different thing because he's going to say at the end of that, this which was declared to his servants, the prophets. So, so I, I don't think these are the same pieces of communication. What the angel is saying is there, there's going to be then this, this, the fullness of revelation is about to come out. The word mystery does not mean something secret that, is, uh, that you need to follow the clues and figure it out. All right? So it's not like a detective novel, mystery. The word mystery, theologically, biblically, especially in the New Testament, I'm not going to say it's always used this way, but I can't think of an exception, but I, but I do give that little caveat. I, almost every example in the New Testament a mystery is something that God has veiled or kept hidden to be revealed at the time that he wanted to reveal it. So, so one, this means you're not going to figure it out unless he makes it known. So this, this mystery, the gospel is described this way. Paul describes the gospel as the, the mystery of God made known. Paul even says, I was made a, a, a proclaimer of this mystery to the Gentiles. Meaning the fullness of the gospel being made known that every tribe, tongue, and nation got saved the same way, even if the tribe, tongue, and nation was the Jewish one. That whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, everybody gets saved by faith in Christ. And everybody has equal access then to this gospel. And so this is the mystery, but this, this was not known, say, in Ezra's day. Right? Ezra wouldn't have known anything about Christ crucified and resurrected. Uh, I think that he would be operating with an understanding of the promise of a Messiah. They all did. They all operated that way. They understood this. But, but he wouldn't have known the fullness. So this is what mystery means. God, at the appropriate time, his designated time, makes known in fullness that which had been veiled or shadowed or just outlined, right? Bits and pieces. Now God fits it all together for you. So the, that's what he means here. So that which is still veiled and largely, uh, you know, it could be this, it could be that. You know, now he's saying this is now going to be made manifest in its fullness. So the mystery of the, the mystery 
is finished. So the word finished here, this is also an important word. This doesn't mean that everything's done when the seventh trumpet blows. The word finished means has come into its fullness. Rather than everything's done, because obviously not everything's done, because after the seventh trumpet, there are seven bolts. And then there's a second coming, right? And then there's a millennial kingdom and there's judgment. All right, all right, so there's a lot more coming. There's a lot more after this. And, and so when he says this mystery that is about to be finished, he's saying that now it's, it's going to be made known all of its fullness. It's going to come to its completion. It's coming into its fullness, its fruition. So he is saying with the coming of this seventh trumpet, this is the final act of human history. It's, it's going to be, there's going to be several things associated with it, but this, this, is, this is the ultimate culmination here. Everything that's been declared by the prophets is going to come come to its head. And I think he's really talking here about the great day of God's wrath. This final fulfillment of the great day of the wrath of God that we've already talked about in books like, like Joel and even Amos. These, this language that's so important to the minor prophets in particular, that this is, this is what he's pointing to. All right? Qu- questions about this? About this angel, this pronouncement, we're not there yet, by the way. We're not at the seventh trumpet yet. He's just, and he's speaking this in heaven. So this is a message to heaven and John. People on earth aren't hearing this angel say this. This is happening in heaven. All right, so then, then this finishes up. Verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go. Take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So again, this this is not the same thing as what he heard from the seven thunders, nor is it the same thing that is the mystery of God that is about to be finished. So the big angel, right? The gigantic angel that can stand on the land and on the ocean. Go to him and get the book. So we already saw this little book that was open in his hand. And so this is why we identify this with the Word of God, whatever's in his hand. Again, to me what makes most sense is this is the scroll that is described in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Mainly for this reason, because what he says to do. Go take, uh, get, uh, so I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And He said to me, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. So this, this puts John in pretty rarefied air, right? With those other two prophets and God's call to eat the message. So that, that's why I think there's a connection here. And so this is the fulfillment of, of those prophetic words Again, it could be the rest of the book of Revelation. It, it, it could be any number of things. What I think is most important is identifying it with the word of God. John, as a prophet, is being given the final word from God. So after this, there will be no more prophets. Right? This is the final prophetic word. This, by the way... 
it's one of the reasons why I am what is called a cessationist. We don't have to get into this, all right? But why I believe then prophecy as a gift where people foretell things came to a close in the New Testament period. John is the last one. Now, people can speak prophetically and that they can speak truth boldly and apply it to cultural circumstances. So people can still be prophetic in that sense. I would argue that pastors should be operating prophetically that way. I would argue that far too pastors are not operating that way, speaking clearly the truth of the word of God into the circumstances of the culture. But, but, but John is the final one. So John is the last guy who's going to be getting this prophetic message and he's told to do what they were told to do, to eat it. And this designation here is so interesting, and John is going to identify this to be the case. Verse 10, then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So he does. He takes this word and he eats it. And at first it is. It's sweet. It's the message of God. It is divine revelation. But then it also sits like bitterness in his stomach. And, you know, obviously what he's talking about here involves a a significant amount of of symbolism, of, of ingesting God's message. Like, did John literally get... I mean, is, is this gigantic angel giving him a scroll, you know, and John is up there in heaven gnawing this thing down, tearing up in bits and pieces, trying to swallow it? Well, you know, that, I mean, that seems like an odd thing to do. It, it is describing then the ingesting of the word of God. And could this have been a, been a supernatural act where he's ingesting this book? You got to know your pastor likes sci-fi. All right, so I have a lot of explanations for how this would look that probably, unless you liked, um, you know, weird sci-fi things, you would not appreciate. My wife would not appreciate, all right? So, but I could see this being, you know, something really supernaturally and he ingesting it and just one fell swoop. All right, okay. What matters, though, is he's told to internalize this word and these dual aspects of the word, I think, are what's important. Sweet and bitter. A, a, a message that is, that is of value and precious to us. It is, it is something sweet in, in our mouths. It is the blessed word of God. But we recognize that the word of God is also hard. And there are hard things we have to say. And the world needs to hear the hard things. And our families need to hear it. Our community needs to hear it. Churches need to hear it. Sometimes telling people the truth sits like bitterness in your gut. I mean, to be sure, we've probably all experienced that, right? Where the need to communicate the truth was not an enjoyable moment. It was was bitter. And keep in mind what John's responsibility is. He's got a message to the nations. He's going to have to preach more about this terrifying wrath of God that's about to be poured out. In fact, you could almost say it's, it, you ain't seen nothing yet. The judgment to come is far worse than anything we've, we've seen to this point. Michael? Is it also a 
validation that it's not only not always going to be enjoyable, but frequently won't be, and that the indication here stating that it was sweet to his mouth but get bitter to his stomach, it's not only not enjoyable, it's not optional. Either. It's not optional. It's That's not true. Sure. But the, the, the prophetic sense, like you just mentioned there a little while ago, you would like to see the pastors do that. But I think that's important. I think the old-timey pastors, the old-timey evangelists say, well, you know, I'm just very full of them. Hmm. And when they make that statement, isn't that sort of indicative of a sense that I feel like I'm really, like through the power of the Spirit, I've ingested God's Word, and, and I have to say something. I feel compelled by the love of Christ to say something. Even though it doesn't, what I've got to say may not be a very happy message. It may be very difficult for me to say this. Uh, and I realize it's not the same thing as what John's experiencing here. Sure. But I also understand that there's another prophetic sense that you were talking about. And I think that's maybe what they meant by that. Sort of the old, the old time pastors sometimes in evangelists talk about being so full that they feel like they need, they, they feel compelled by the Lord to share it, even though it's not going to necessarily be a message that's very enjoyable to share. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it does, you know, indicate this, this responsibility and obligation. It's, there's, there's no other choice in the matter. It does, it does have to be communicated. Uh, it has to be made known. Because for whatever reason, this is how God has decided to get his message made known. He could have devised a thousand different ways, but he's entrusted the message to his people. And as people are not to just, I mean, we are to eat it, uh, though I understand this is a specific instance here, but we are, we are to take in this word and proclaim this word. And there's elements of it that, again, are really sweet, and then there are parts of it that are really hard. Uh, and and we, we, need to be, we need to be faithful to this. It is an obligation on our part. Uh, one, to be filled up with this word. We do want to be filled up with this word, and we want to communicate it faithfully faithfully. Um, and so this is hard. And you know, you know, God had similar things to say to the prophets like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah. You know, he told these prophets, uh, he said, I, these are messages, and this is a summation, but these are messages I'm giving to you that everybody you tell them to are going to hate. They're going to hate this. They're going to hate you. Um, they're going to put you in a log and saw you in half. That's what they're going to do to you. Um, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because no one ever believed him. He was told that. God said, no one's, <laughs> no one's going to listen to you. Um, they're they're going to be hardened to this. So that's, that's difficult. It's difficult to be in that kind of position. But you know, th this section would be a good reminder, I think, to the church of the day. It's a good reminder to us. God has his word. He entrusts that word to his servants and he, he expects his servants to communicate it. And, and we can trust that. We can trust this word to be sufficient uh, and, and powerful and able to do what God intends for it to do. And this is kind of the, the, the takeaway I put at the bottom of your notes, at least for this section. We've talked about this before, but I just think it's worth emphasizing. The word of God is of utmost importance to God's plan, uh, especially in what I mean by that in terms of the communication of it. God does not act where he does not reveal himself and his purposes through his word. God 
never. Now, some people may have been surprised when God stuff did stuff, but that was their fault. God never. There's, there's not one instance, by the way. And here's what I want you to do next week. I want you to read all of the Bible to see if I'm wrong. All right? Between now and next Sunday, read all the Bible to find out if I'm wrong. There's not one instance of judgment that God ever sprang on the people unannounced. There's not one example. He gave the people in Noah's day nearly a century. He gave centuries to the Jews. I mean, again and again and again. And how about us? How long have we had the book of Revelation? We're going on 1,900 years now. No one, no one can say, I didn't know. People could say, I didn't believe. People could say, I decided not to read. <laughs> but God does not act. He doesn't have to do it this way, but he has. God does not act where he does not reveal this. And so we need to be faithful, faithful to this. All right, what, what I do want you to do, maybe not the entire, um, so this is going to kind of be lowballing. So don't read the entire thing. Just read chapter 11 of Revelation. All right, how about that? Just read chapter 11. All right, you should be able to get to that because next week we're going to talk about two things that happen in this chapter which can be tricky. Um, John is told to measure out the temple. What does that mean? And then we hear about these two witnesses. Who can breathe fire? All right, so uh, the sci-fi is going to ratchet up a notch, all right, uh, for next Sunday night. Okay, let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you again for the gathering of your people. We are privileged to have been able to come together to be encouraged by one another by your word be encouraged by the worship of God's people. We are just thankful for what so often feels like a respite, a bit of relief from the, the pain and chaos of the world. We are able to come together. Uh, we do so just in full confidence in you and in your word. And we're grateful then that as we launch out into the week that lays out before us, we can do so in faith, trusting your sovereignty, trusting your providential work and care for your people. So may we be faithful to you. To, to whatever you bring our way and the paths that you have directed for us, that, that we, would, we would walk them obediently and for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.